Sean. Hey, Radcast is on. And welcome to the show, Mr. Jim Zumbo. Gentlemen, I am pleased to be here, and I use that term loosely when I say gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Al Winder. Just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us on a podcast for a little bit. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. Nothing makes me happier than a cold in Minnesota. If I can't be out fishing, I should be talking about fishing. (laughs) (laughs) Hailing from Wisconsin, Jenna Waller. Thanks so much for having me. It's Redcast. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. Powered by Bo Spider. Brought to you by PK Lures and High Mountain Seasonings. And now, here's your hosts, Patrick Edwards and David Merrill. All right, everybody, this is a special edition of Radcast Outdoors this week. David and I are going to take the month of December off to work on some other things. Um, We're trying to do some things to improve the show, but also going to take some time with our families over the next few weeks, as I'm sure all of you are. But we wanted to do a special edition of Radcast Outdoors, a Radcast Rewind, on one of our favorite episodes regarding mountain lions with Dan Thompson. So I hope you'll sit back and relax and enjoy the show. And today we're joined by Dan Thompson. He is the large carnivore supervisor for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. We're super excited to have him here. Say hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) There's a cheesy joke. Yeah, so we brought Dan in to talk today about mountain lions. Mountain lions are his specialty and something he knows a whole bunch about. And I know living here in Wyoming, most of us are pretty familiar with mountain lions and bits and pieces about them, but Dan's going to get a little bit more in detail for us. One of the things I wanted to bring up is I read an article of yours a few years ago. It was in 2018. It was called Ghost Cats. And it was published in Wyoming Wildlife, which is an awesome publication. If you guys haven't gone out there and read that or looked at the pictures that they have in their annual issue where they have a photo contest, you should definitely pick those up. But you have this article in here and it talks about mountain lions and kind of the management plan and what you guys are doing. So I just wanted to see if you could kind of start us off by uh, talking about how mountain lions are expanding, kind of what the reason for that is and kind of what's going on there. Yeah, honestly, that's something that is near and dear to my heart. It's pretty fascinating to me. The expansion of mountain lions, uh, you know, they're, we already knew how adaptable they were. They've, uh, they've got the largest range of any terrestrial mammal in North or in the Western hemisphere other than humans. Um, but they still, even in the years of reduction, persecution, they still maintain themselves in the landscape just because of their life history. And what we're seeing now is pretty much wide scale expansion to the east uh, across the the front of their distribution. Uh, It started, you know, one of the first uh, new breeding populations, I guess you'd call it, was the Black Hills. And that's where I did, that's where I started working on mountain lions. And, uh, you know, well now (laughs) I'm getting old, but when I started, you know, 15 years before that, you didn't talk about mountain lions in the Black Hills. And now they're kind of you know, they're the epicenter of mountain lion densities in a lot of places. It's just natural recolonization. And as you see a population, and it's true with all wildlife, but in the case of mountain lions, of course, they were basically extirpated from some of that range in the east. But again, they're very adaptable and they were able to naturally expand, most likely from Wyoming and establish themselves like in the Black Hills. And then that population flourished, quite honestly. And now we have breeding populations in Nebraska. North Dakota, they're expanding east out of Colorado, um, and then we're even seeing we, the managers are seeing expansion of Florida panthers. Uh, they're much more limited, of course, but uh, the basically with some management and regulation, these animals are very resilient, and we're seeing that wide scale expansion to the east uh, with mountain lions. And I shouldn't say just the east; uh, we're, we're seeing expansion. In their current range, too, uh, where densities have increased and there are more movement among populations uh, and even north into toward Alaska. Um, and you talked about Alaska last time. I'm, they really weren't – there weren't a lot of records of them there, but they're seeing more expansion into, like, that Juneau country and, uh, and just an overall expansion of the species in general. So just to back up just a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, how did you get your start? Where, I mean – you're now doing large carnivore, and I can tell you're super passionate about it, and I'm I'm excited. But I want to let the viewers kind of sure. how did you get to where you are today? Oh, that's a that's like another podcast. <laughs> uh, give, give us so, the cliff notes. Sure, cliff notes. Um, so I grew up uh, grew up on a farm in Iowa. Uh, a lot of Midwesterners end up 
in the West, I guess. And, uh, but I, I grew up, you know, with a lover of the outdoors and hunting and fishing and trapping and, and doing those things. And for, but for some reason, I, I always wanted to work with wildlife. I knew from a young age and I went to college for wildlife and fisheries and somehow made it through. <laughs> then, uh, um, I went, I got several, and I, this is a career path for a lot of people in the wildlife biology, wildlife management program is you spend a lot of years nomadic bouncing around from job to job, three months here, three months there. Kind of study um, jobs where they're doing a specific yeah, species Yeah, working study for grad for students, working for states. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've done my first wildlife job was songbirds, small mammal trapping and habitat. Yeah, so they're going to say yeah. is it's typically not you don't a large jump into, yeah, 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 you're you're doing a and a so, turtle study somewhere yeah. for three months. But you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, I think that makes you well versed as a biologist. I think it's it's great. And so I bounced around. I worked. I, I kind of got into the world of turkeys, wild turkeys, and uh, I ended up doing a master's on wild turkeys in the Black Hills. And so I had that in with the Black Hills. And then when I was finishing up. Uh, as serendipitous that this project opened on mountain lions and I had no intentions of ever going well I didn't have intentions of going to graduate school but things worked the way they did and um, I put in for this mountain lion project and I was fortunate enough to get it and it was really I mean this was at the time where we were just understanding what's happening with this new newly expanded population and it was a really neat time and and we caught a lot of cats and I learned a lot and um, it was just, it was fun to be in that world and, you know, basically walking where the lion walks every day was my job. And so I finished up there and, and there was an opening here at Wyoming Game and Fish and I, I interviewed for that and basically I was hired as the trophy game biologist was called at the time, but focusing on mountain lions. I did that for five years before moving into the position I'm in now. So in your free time, <laughs> would you rather hunt or fish? And what oh, would you rather be chasing? See, that's not fair. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I think I grew up fishing more because I, I where I grew up, there's a lot more fishing opportunity. There was only certain things to hunt, I guess, put it that way. I think if I was in Wyoming, and we didn't have elk and <laughs> in well, I read a pronghorn, but um, you know, I, I, it's obviously dependent on the time of year, but I, I. I I really enjoy spring turkey hunting. Uh, obviously, I enjoy everything that we have to offer in the fall for hunting. But I, I guess I, that's an unfair question. <laughs> <laughs> He's torn. Yeah, I am torn because it's about 50-50. And I, I don't, you know, a lot of times now it's more if I can get the kids out to do something like a rabbit hunt or take the kids fishing. and Brookies in a high mountain stream yeah, right? in June, yeah. July. Yeah, and, and I have no issues putting a worm on a hook at Lucky Pond outside of Lander because you can catch <laughs> fish with, with little kids. You want to keep them. They, you don't have to put them on a death march the first time they go out. And so I think there's there's a lot of great you know pond fishing opportunities for parents with young kids in Fremont County. So I do take advantage of that quite a bit and uh, try to get the kids out rabbit hunting is what I started with. So that's what I do with them. I also just want to say congratulations. I saw you were one of the employees of the year for Game and Fish. I ah, saw that in the in the you. magazine and just wanted to say congratulations because that is a that's a high award um, thank you. from the Game and Fish Department. So it, it just shows that you you truly are motivated by your job. You you care a lot about what you're doing and, and you're giving back too. So I, I think that that part is really important. And you being here today kind of shows that you're giving back and have a passion for the subject matter. I so. do. And I, I mean, an award like that's also more of a reflection of the people I work with and the crew in our large carnivore section. I mean, we're we're a close-knit family, quite honestly. And so I'd like to think of that as a reflection of the men and women in that as well, too. So yeah, absolutely. kudos to them. So I want to get back to these cats. You talked a little bit about how they've kind of been persecuted, killed off. Uh, tell us the history of that. So uh, like most of our large toothy critters in uh, North America, with westward expansion, the, the goal was to eradicate mountain lions, wolves, and bears from the landscape. I mean, there's federal governmental programs to do so. Mountain lions, there was bounties starting in the 1800s. Um, I've got, I don't have it with me, but like the amount of shillings you could get in Connecticut and places like that for, for taking a, a catamount, they call them there. And uh, most of those bounty periods extended into the, well, into the middle of the 
70s anyway, 1970s for mountain lions. There was these programs to eradicate them, poisoning pretty much any way you could. And then that persisted from, you know, the 1700s, well, before that with westward expansion. And not, not that the indigenous people didn't didn't take mountain lions as well, but the, those eradication programs really kind of started more in the 1700s, 1800s, and through the 1900s. So, But that, I mean, like I mentioned before, that's what was really unique I think about mountain lions is that despite all efforts to wipe them from the earth or wipe them from North America, they still, their life history, they're very reclusive and elusive and they kind of just, they make a living without knowing they're, you you don't know they're there. When a bear bear shows up in the neighborhood, (laughs) you know they're there. I was going to (laughs) say of of the three, you know, grizzly bears, wolves and, and, and mountain lions, having interacted and and witnessed all three in the field. And and I, I, I like all three. I think they're cool, but Mm -hmm. there's something extra special about those cats because it's just your eyeballs almost don't believe, you know, bears kind of, I wouldn't say clumsy, but they're a little cumbersome when they're walking. They're, they're a little more noisy, you know, they're, they're quiet, but they're, they're a little more wolves there. You can hear them all the time and they're, they're kind of, they're a little more scattered, right? But a cat, when it comes, you know, out of a clear cut or up a draw or something, working a ridge. It's just, it's almost like a ghost. Well, and their whole life is built on stealth. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's what's, I think that's what invokes a lot of interest or, and or fear with mountain lions is that, that stealthy approach and that a lot of times they are out there and you just don't know it. But definitely, I mean, yeah, I think you nailed it. Bears are not bumbling, but they're, they don't, they're more deliberate. And uh, well, in a different way, mountain lions are very deliberate, but very quiet about what they do. And if you've seen a mountain lion, you almost have to, you stop and like, you look and it takes your brain a second to, to recognize what it is. Quite honestly, if you see a wolf, you know, you know, I mean, if you guys have seen a wolf, it's, it's obvious there's like, that's a wolf and, and bears are bears, but you just, you don't see mountain lions. It's rare enough that you almost have, your brain has to take a second to, to figure out that that's what you're seeing. But the wolves are running through the field almost like your your golden retriever, your German yeah. shepherd. They're 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 pack hunting. Right? Yeah. And the bears are they're either rolling rocks or working a trail or they're 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 deliberate, like you yep. said. But the cats are just they they pause and they look back and the to- tail twitches and yeah. the, and the ear twitches a little bit and you look and then they they spot you or they just keep moving and it's 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 eerie. Yeah, it is. It is. It's kind of a uh, there's almost a mystique about them that's. I think pretty unique to to most large cats, but I think you know a solitary animal like a mountain lion just it 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 does have a different mystique to it than the other animals that we have in Wyoming. Yeah, and there's two predators that I always think of about, especially when you talk about adaptability to their surroundings. And one is coyotes. Coyotes are everywhere, and they figured out how to survive everywhere. And mountain lions, and they're extremely adaptable to humans and they figure out a way to exist where humans are. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, just how kind of what you've seen working with these animals and how they interact in human and urban areas. Cause I mean, California is dealing with it lots of different sure. places. So how do they do that? So well, I think you already kind of attributed it to their resiliency and adaptability. And you know, again, we're, I mean, we've been studying them, since the 70s, um, when Morris Hornacker was one of the first people to put a collar on one. But it's in the evolution of, you know, since the Pleistocene, 30, 40 years is not much. So we're still learning about them, but they, they can make a living wherever there's there's food and hiding cover. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of areas. Uh, the Colorado front right now has a lot of where the, basically the exurban, as they call it, where mountain lions are there, but there's a prey source. And what they're seeing in areas like that is they're eating a lot of raccoons and things like that. And when we've seen, we we did some work in Rock Springs. Um, Justin Clapp, who's a Fremont County native, uh, he's our mountain lion biologist now. We initiated some work down there, which is a little different lion habitat than what you'd expect in the, the Wind Rivers here. And, and we see them eating more coyotes and pronghorn, things like that. Uh, in the Dakotas, we saw them eating um badgers and mink and things like that and so they're very good at at figuring out what's available and and then there's always specialization that occurs and so uh as that you know as as we have more residential areas if there is a place for them to to go about their business and there's a 
standard food source, they, they can stick around. And house cats. They, yeah, they, dogs. they really do like house cats. Yeah. Um, and un- unfortunately, you know, for us, the dog is kind of like another level up um, mm-hmm. because they, they naturally go away from dogs. But uh, when they start deciding they want to eat dogs, that's usually when we come in from a management standpoint. Um, and there's issues with feral dogs and stuff where you can't blame a lion for figuring that out as a food source. But those are all things that we weigh into into that risk. And of course, when it comes to uh, domestics, domestic pets or livestock, it's really it's once they figure that out, it, it's it can happen pretty quickly to decide that's a new food source. And that's why we'll usually come in from a management standpoint. And, and it's typically an easier food source for them and sure. they get habituated yep. to it. Yep. yep. But I mean, I, I want to touch on, so you, you're touched on it, but a mountain lion will go from birds, grouse, all the way up to deer, even elk or sheep. Yep. Right? They'll specialize depending on what their habitat is, what's available. Yeah. And I mean, we, we see primarily uh, in Wyoming and in the West, primarily deer is the main food source, but uh, we're definitely some work in Jackson that, that we worked, assisted with. Uh, and there's more elk there. It's in the Grovant country. They were eating a lot more elk in proportion, and especially in the winter when they're, when they're able now, to be are they, stocked better. Are they going after calves? Or are they going after healthy adult? Usually it's calves or cows. Um, okay. And, you know, talking with the, Elbrock, who was the researcher at the time, it's like we were talking about, you know, if there's three elk standing there, they're going to pick the one with its head down, <laughs> you know, that they can go to. Uh, but but it's, it is based on vulnerability. and But you'll get some toms, like some big mountain lions that will specialize on, on larger elk. And, you know, you can look at it this way, too. A, a, a bull after rut is much more vulnerable than uh, an adult cow. And so uh, they're a stalk and ambush predator, so they're not, you know, they're, they're just whichever one they can get to and get killed quick is what they're going for. What is kind of an average on ungulates a success rate on like a stock for a mountain lion? Oh, that's a great. I I don't even know the actual success rate on a stock. They're they're pretty successful because of they're not the a coursing predator. That, so like with a a wolf or a coursing, or even like a like so they're not wild gonna... dogs. They 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 have a lot that they break off and don't aren't successful. Uh, but most mount once a mountain lion makes that commitment and gets close enough. I mean, sometimes they get away, but it's pretty rare once they once they get their teeth into the neck. I mean, they're very their predation technique is to they're they're basically evolved that their jaws and their teeth are meant to disarticulate the the vertebrae, and that's why deer they can do that a lot better. When they get a bigger elk, it's tougher. Or like in the instance of a rutting deer where there's a lot of neck, if they can't get around to it, then they might try a suffocation kill. But they're going to get their butts kicked with sharp hooves if it takes them a while. So it's all mm. part of that strategy and they learn it through time and, but they're very efficient at what they do. Yeah. You're talking about their physical abilities. Tell us more about that. Like their leaping ability and some of the strengths that you guys have documented. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're very impressive as far as they can. I don't know exactly how high, but I mean, it's nothing for them to jump 10, 20 feet in the air over something. You know, they're not a marathon runner for sure. And that's why like when we're, trying to catch them we'll use dogs and once you once you jump the cat they don't go very far and they'll go up a tree or or go in a hole or something like that so they're not meant for marathon like versus like a wolf that can run forever but they've um, evolved to run from wolves and learn that hey if i just run a short distance to the closest tree exactly. the wolves will lose interest and leave well and that's i mean that's why you can still tree a many a black lab or basset hound or non-lion hunting dog is treat a, a lion over the years because it's a barking animal and thousands of years of evolving with, with canids that go after them is why they go up a tree, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, they're they're an impressive animal from a lot of different standpoints, whether it be, you know, you talked about their jaws being set up in, a, in such yeah. a way that they can disable an animal. What are some other interesting things that people might not know about mountain lions and what they do, you know, whether it be when they're attacking prey or just other physical attributes that people may not know about. Well, I mean, they're all muscle, of course. They're, it's impressive to see the musculature of, a, especially like a adult male mountain lion, that is just the, the front shoulders, the neck and head are just, they you're kind of awestruck when you see them, just the musculature of that animal. Of course, they have the retractile claws, like all cats, except you know, cheetah's the only one that doesn't have retractile claws. But if you've never seen one up close, they are 
razor sharp and there's precision with those claws that they use when after they have an animal down they're just an incredible predator yeah. I, I don't think people understand sometimes like especially folks who don't live out west and aren't around them don't understand just how apex of a predator they are yeah and i mean that true and then i think that's the the one thing that we're seeing those changing dynamics with wolves and that was one of the things we were talking about when i was working on the black hills is that you know i postulated that when I was done with my work, there's probably more lions there then than there were a hundred years ago because mm-hmm. there was nothing to compete with but themselves. And we started seeing that with uh, infanticide. So like that's something mountain lions will come in and, and kill a litter. Uh, it's somewhat density dependent, of course, but uh, we do see that. And you see a lot of male on male aggression and fights, which are very impressive. I've, I've heard them. I've never seen them. Uh, we actually had a, we had an individual call outside of Spearfish, South Dakota, when I was over there. He had a this. He heard the fight behind his house. It woke him up, and there was this ridge line behind his place. And so we took dogs up there, and he said something about the cat going in circles, and we didn't think much of it. Well, we couldn't get the cat to tree, and finally did. And it looked, and it kind of looked like a stroke victim, like half its body wasn't working. And so we, and it, it was obviously in really bad shape. So we euthanized it, and um, I took it back to the lab and and skinned it and did a necropsy and like half of its head was mush the muscle and there was canine punctures through the skull and that cat was still alive it's from another a uh-huh. bigger a bigger male <laughs> that won that fight but uh, there's a lot of that those things that happen you know one thing we're learning is there's a lot more interactions between them uh, as we get more gps information on the animals we do see there's more interactions but they're still very much a solitary animal unless they're, mm-hmm. they're mating or unless they have young yeah, I saw a thing on Facebook just the other day. They had five, there were five mountain lions together on this person's front driveway. I think it was in Florida somewhere. Yeah. But, you know, they were all caught on this porch cam, and there were five of them together. And they were like, man, this is really crazy behavior because typically they, you yeah. don't have that many together. But there were five adult lions all in one spot. Huh, and that was probably, you know, as those kittens as they get older, some people call them cubs. I've always called them kittens. As they get older, they'll get almost as big as the female. And a lot of those bigger groups we'll see is it was probably a, a female with four kittens like uh, that. Okay. But we've seen, like, there was a, you know, with trail cams, and everybody's got a camera now on, in their pocket, and you get a lot more of these, like, here's nine cats together. And you can usually look at them and tease out, well, here's, this is the female and three kittens, and this is a female and four kittens, and it's two family groups on a kill or something like that but you know the black hills is an area where there's i've got a picture somewhere of like six different tracks going forward wow. like a two toms and and it's so it's just it is impressive some of those interactions that you can see i've had the opportunity to harvest a mountain lion and actually uh, consumed it and it's it's pretty good people yeah. don't know that until you actually and you've had the the chance to kind of immobilize some of these and call them right and mm-hmm. i mean it's it's hard for me to tell people the the, the muscular structure of these animals is, it's unreal. I mean, yeah. they are purpose-built just machines. The the sheer power in a mountain lion, it, it's hard to explain. I mean, but, you know, you think about this as an animal. A female's average about 100 pounds uh, as an adult. Males can get up to, can get up to 200 pounds. That's extremely, extremely rare. But um, I've, we've caught multiple cats over 170 pounds and put, collars on them and you can get an adult female to take down an adult cow elk you know there's there's hundreds of pounds difference there and then what's even more impressive is that is once they do it then they'll drag it 200 yards like it's nothing and so uh, there is just there's a lot of power there like you said and um, we did a lot of immobilization and collaring when I was doing my research in the hills and the first cat I ever caught it was we actually taught there were two um, females like 75 pounds dripping wet they weren't that big but the one was starting to come out of the drug, and we had to do one tightening on the collar, and I grabbed its tail, and it just did like a little lunge and pulled me me and her with it, half drugged. And so, I mean, they just have they have a lot of power. Wow. <laughs> it doesn't make me feel too good about my chances if no, I ever encounter no, one. <laughs> no. So how can someone tell the difference between, you know, I, I think the most commonly confused is, is an adult wolf, you know, possibly a, a canine, but usually a wolf and a mountain lion tractor. Can you explain to sure. our listeners? Sure. Uh, you know, the, obviously the claws are always present on a wolf track, and they're generally not on a lion track. Uh, the big thing, 
the the diagnostic thing to look for on a track is on the the pad you're going to see three lobes on a mountain lion where you won't on a wolf it's like a kind of like a smashed m but depending on the substrate you might not always get that wolf tracks are much more vertically oriented versus a mountain lion track is horizontally oriented and uh, basically look at look for those the toes are more teardrop and they're just again it's kind of a cleaner track usually on a mountain lion than a wolf and i always say look for more than one track because if you just get one track you always find oh there's no there's no claw there or there is a claw there Um, but look at that look at the lobes on the front track Uh, all cats have that three lobe if you got a house cat go out and look at their tracks and you'll see those three lobes on the bottom that's really diagnostic on a cat track yeah, we had a mountain lion come through our place. This has been years ago on my farm, and it went and checked out our garbage can. It was just moving through. Mm-hmm. It had stopped by either previous or right after at my neighbor's house and killed some chickens. And That's not good. Yeah, they called us all upset because they thought it was our St. Bernard. <laughs> and so I had seen the tracks in our driveway, you know, and I could tell they weren't dog prints. And I'll tell you, my St. Bernard's were pretty good size but this track was way bigger than any kind of track that they put out so it was kind of one of those things where you could easily tell that i mean it was massive i could put my hand pretty much in it it's just kind of funny because they they were upset about it because they thought it was a saint bernard well they it was probably a eight foot high fence to get in there and i was like my dogs can't get over an eight foot fence they can't even get over a four foot fence you know because they're just big heavy St. Bernard. So anyway, we went through all that, but they really are incredible and and they do cover a ton of ground. Um, yeah. and, and I know you, you wrote about this in the article is that you're starting to learn how, just how much ground they can cover. So can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, that was one of the things I was looking at back in the day when I was doing my research, um, the dispersal potential. And it's actually how we base our management plan. We know they move a lot between and among populations, but what became really interesting is these cats more on the eastern front of their range. Basically, you know, we've seen them move from the bighorns to the absorcas and to the Laramie um, and all throughout the west. But there, there's always another breeding population there. And so I guess my hypothesis was we had these cats leave in the hills, Black Hills. They'd go east and they're going to find food. They're going to find habitat, but they're not going to find a female. And that's pretty much what drives... Any young cat, like any male of any species, I guess, is looking for, you know, an ability to to create progeny and and get your genetics out there. And so we had mountain lions from the Black Hills. Uh, We had one male that traveled over 663 straight line miles is what we had. Uh, He disappeared, was hit by a train in Oklahoma. And so he wasn't done dispersing necessarily. And we've had, so that happened early on. And I thought, well, we thought it was a fluke, but we've had, we had several males over 500 miles dispersed from where they were born. And those were collared animals. So we had a point of origin and where they ended up. And a lot of them was like, this is the last point before their collar died or something like that. So they could have went further. Uh, the, there was a mountain lion that showed up in Connecticut that they got DNA on that through DNA analysis, it was most likely a Black Hills mountain lion. So that's, a, I think it was 1,800 miles or something wow. like that. And and the newest thing, and obviously to, for true range expansion to occur, you need the females to make that jump. And usually uh, the the life history of a mountain lion is if a female has two kittens, one's a male, one's a female, the female will set up shop close to the her mom, and the male will take off. I mean, that's just, that's regardless of density. We see it in most carnivores. We, in a high-density situation like the Black Hills, we started seeing females make that jump and start dispersing and so same cat i was talking about that i grabbed its tail and it pulled me with it that cat actually dispersed and we lost track of it you didn't we didn't know what happened and we didn't get the collar off so it was still wearing a collar and like 12 years later i get a call from colorado division of wildlife about this mountain lion with the collar that was hit on the highway by denver i said yeah we've been seeing it here a couple of years like in the vicinity of this collared cat well that that was a female that dispersed from the black hills all the way basically to the eastern front by Denver and lived there her whole life. Wow. And so that's where you see that true range expansion occurring. So what is a average lifespan of a cat? They can live 10 years. I've, we've seen them over 10 years old, 12, 13. That's pretty old, though. 10, 10 is pretty old for a cat. Um, you know, they reach their prime. Females will start breeding about three years of age. And males, and, and like if you've ever been around mountain lions, like especially females basically 
once they get to that two to three year age, they don't get any bigger. But males bulk up through time. And so like when they're like three years old, they start bulking up in musculature in their neck and shoulders. And they try to start being a, a resident, resident Tom. And that's where we see these fights. Like a lot of three-year-old Toms lose. To a <laughs> seven-year-old Yeah, Tom. exactly. To a seven-year-old Tom. Because they think they're they're big enough. But those seven-year-old Toms have been around the block. So it's like uh, a like a like a twenty one year old at a bar challenging yeah, a thirty five year old. Quite honestly, yeah, it is. Um, and you see those, uh, you know, when that was one thing we saw in a high density population. Those old toms, you know, six plus six to six to ten faces were all tore up, and they I mean, they they earned their living for sure. You wrote about the story that made national news. There was a cat that actually attacked a guy up by Cody, I believe it yeah. was. And it was pretty desperate, I think, at that point. And it was probably from wear and tear, I would guess. I mean, maybe you can tell the story and well, it give was us a, some. Yeah, it was really unique. There was a guy cutting wood with a chainsaw, and the cat attacked him. And he hit it with the chainsaw to, to knock it back. And, you know, tough Wyoming, I oh, that was weird, and went bed, went Went, slept in his camper, called us the next day. And uh, and I wasn't involved with the actual capture or anything. But so I was like, well, that's, we need to find this cat, you know. And Luke Ellsbury, who has hounds, works for us. And, and Cody ran it. And we got it in a tree and could see there was something wrong with it. And euthanized it. And it, I think it had a broken leg or something like that. And it's really rare for them to do something like that, obviously. And so, uh, but that that particular situation, it was it was that in need of something. It went after a guy with a chainsaw, which is not a smart move, I guess. Yeah, and I guess just talk a little bit more about interactions with humans because they're not they're not common. Yeah. And so, could you talk about that just a little? Sure. Um, you know, we don't we don't see a lot of of dangerous encounters between mountain lions and humans, at least when compared to like grizzly bears or something like that. Uh, as we see, you know, that we're seeing more of it, the Royal we, I should say, wherever there's mountain lions, you know, in California where there's a higher density of mountain lions and, uh, and a high density of people using the same landscape, uh, that there's more potential for that. And so, and, but it's still extremely rare that we actually have actual, um, attacks, or fatalities attributed to mountain lions. And that's the, I mean, that's the only one really in, that we've had in Wyoming. Um, but we do have, see issues with mountain lions is more uh, livestock depredation with sheep. And they generally are, they're not much of an issue with, with other livestock, quite honestly. It, it's, it happens, but it's pretty rare. And uh, as far as human encounters, um, we talked about a little bit before, but it's, it's usually more of a pet situation. Um, and if they become habituated and start deciding that they want to live in town, then it's not, it's a recipe for that. Those things can escalate pretty quickly. And so those are usually what we'll see with dogs and things like that. As a bow hunter, you know, my, my encounters have been, I'm mimicking elk, making elk sure. vocalizations, very quiet, very still, right? They always sneak up behind me Yep. and you, you never know that it, all of a sudden the hair on the back of my neck stands yeah. up and I just kind of look and it, more than once sure. 50 yards behind me that you, you like get a tail flick or something like there's a cat right there. Yeah. yeah. But you don't hear them. No, and they do. They sneak in. I've had bobcats come in on me turkey hunting, actually, when I was in Missouri. But, yeah, they will come in on that. And but and honestly, they are a curious animal. And they sometimes will walk up to you to see what you are if they're not sure. But that's not necessarily threatening. But I'm not going to tell anybody what their, <laughs> what their threshold of, of, of comfort <laughs> is when they're with a mountain lion until you've worked with them. So, um, but, but generally they, they just, they kind of know not to mess, mess around with people. And that's why when they do, we react quite swiftly. They have a pretty wide r uh, range of vocalization as well. Yeah, they do. Um, they don't vocalize as much as people think. Uh, we get a lot of calls. There's a, there's a cat screaming behind my house. It's a lot of times it's not, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, um, we had a situation. We were trying to capture a, a family group in the Grovant. And so we had, uh, cage traps out and when we were doing it for research we'd, we'd sit on them all night and we had triggers to tell us when and at like at one third one in the morning the both traps closed and so we went up we would just snowshoot up to them and we're going to work them up make it happen quick well it was there was two different family groups there we caught the female of the one family group and a like a six-month-old kitten of the other family group. And so those, they actually walked around us, and they were vocalizing to each other. They kind of do these chirps and whistles. And uh, that was really neat to be part of. I mean, we worked them up really quick and set them on their way. But it was, yeah, to hear those, the, the kittens do a real whistle, 
And some of the vocalizations of females are a lot like a cow elk calling her calf. So mm-hmm. I think there's there's some things that are going on there too. But they, there is kind of a neat little communication that occurs. It's pretty quiet just between, especially a, a maternal female and her kittens. Yeah, what's the <laughs> statistics on how many kittens they have typically? So like a nationwide average is two to three, just like 2.7 I think was the is the average. And, you know, that's pretty much what we see here. Once a female I think comes into her prime, they're usually having about three kittens and usually about two of those will survive. Okay, yeah, that was something I wanted to ask is how many of them actually make it yeah. to adulthood. So it's usually two. Yeah, it depends. I mean, it's uh, it's 60 to 70% survival depending on where you're at. I mean, certain areas have lower survival, of course. Uh, but they're usually that 50 to 70% survival of kittens. And that's why they have two to three. And they, you know, they're kind of unique in that they can breed any time of the year. And so you don't have that. They're all born in the spring like a, like canids or like even bobcats. And so um, there's a, definitely a birth pulse in late summer, early fall, which probably mimics when those cats are coming of age. There's also neonates dropping on the ground. So there's a more food for them. Uh, but we've definitely documented kittens year round, anytime, any month of the year. So um, one of the questions that a lot of people have is how do I react if I do come face to face with a mountain lion? Because it is different sure. than with bears. So can you talk about that a little? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as with everything, do not run. I know that's a basal instinct is to run. With a mountain lion, you want to keep it in front of you. Talk firmly. And because like I mentioned before, they instinctively know not to mess with with people. I mean, honestly, with the amount of people and mountain lions we have in the Western U.S., if they wanted to, it would be a different situation. It'd be like Zabo lion type of situation, but they, they just know that we're the dominant to them. I think you touched um, on one part is when they go to predate on an animal, they want it looking away and down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so if you, if you can maintain that eye contact, Correct. they, they become uncomfortable. Well, and it's keeping them in front of you. And it, honestly, it's letting them know you're not a, a prey you're not potential prey for them. And so that's why, and we do, we do a workshops throughout the state. And we have a lot of information on our website and things like that about being safe in lion country because lions are the, I mean, they're the ubiquitous carnivore in the state. You can, you can run into one anywhere. And so, and there, I mean, there, there's never a, a ton of them, but there's the potential. And so uh, the big thing is, is like you said, um, keep them in front of you. Don't run. And sometimes you'll, you might, it might be a surprise encounter. They're literally trying to figure out what you are. I had one when we were trying to figure out if this female had kittens, and I was sneaking in on her. She had a collar on her, and I came up over a ridge. I stepped on a twig, and I didn't know she was right there because it was on the other side of a ridge, and she was, like, right there. And uh, I stepped on this twig, and then she she went up and, like, at 30 yards turned and put her head down and came straight at me. And so, like we say, make yourself look big, talk loudly, and I made myself look big and yelled a few expletives at the time <laughs> and uh, uh but she the second i did that because she didn't know what i was and she did have kittens actually at the time and uh I, I threw my hands up in the air and i i said some things and uh she picked her head up and went the other way and so that's the one thing i know it sounds silly but make yourself look big show that animal that you're not you're not a deer you're not something to that they would normally want to to have for supper and um, they're going to go about their way the strong, strong majority of the time. So coming from Oregon, there's some pretty strong emotions and feelings around cats. I mm-hmm. mean, especially in, you know, some of the quick stats, I know that their target management objective is somewhere around 4,000 cats and the, the latest uh, numbers are 9,000 cats in the state. But I, I kind of, without getting very controversial, I just want to shed some light on running cats with dogs mm-hmm. and, and trapping cats, right? Because have you done any, you know, leg hold traps where you've, you know, worked a cat up and, and then turn around and, and let it loose? And I mean, because there's this stigma sure. that leg hold traps are, you know, instant death. And there's a stigma that, you know, if, if you treat a cat with dogs, you've basically, you know, somehow irreparably damaged that cat. Sure. And I mean, the go-to method of catching a, catching a mountain lion is dogs, trained dogs. Then there's all kinds of different dogs that you can use, but Generally, some form of hound or cur or combinations of those are used to, to basically track the animal. Like I mentioned before, the, the actual capture part doesn't take that long. Again, a mountain lion can travel 20 miles in a night. When you set out on a track, you're always seeing how fresh it is first. And if you let the dogs loose, you know, they're going to run it. But until they actually jump the cat, you, know, you might go eight, you might go nine miles and 
nine and nine tenths miles and then jump the cat and it's going to go 300 yards and then go up a tree. So that part is actually not very stressful on the, on the animal itself. Uh, there's a study done uh, here in Wyoming, uh, Fred Lindsay, when he was still here to look at uh, the stress hormones from running cats and whether it was negatively impacting them. And it wasn't unless you ran a cat multiple, multiple times in one day. So it's actually not, it's not a, it's not impacting that animal overall to run it with dogs. And otherwise we wouldn't use it for research, obviously. And a lot of, there's a lot of houndsmen out there that are selective and they just want to run their dogs and they'll treat a cat and pull their dogs off. And cat waits and comes down the tree. I mean, most, some cats get aggressive in the tree, but most of, honestly, a lot of them look bored up there. Like, when are you going <laughs> to pull the dogs and just leave me alone? That's just not, it's a tried and true method. And, and obviously we're, we're not going to do anything from, it fits from a, monitoring or research standpoint we're not going to do anything to overly stress the animal and it's just it's a really good method to, to at that point when the cat's up the tree you, you you'll dart it sedate it right mm-hmm. yep. work the cat up and you're, you're doing it in minutes not hours and then yeah. you're gone yeah yeah and my i mean the drugs that we're using for mountain lions might oh. take about an hour but that gives you time to to get all the information i mean i'm a big proponent if you have an animal in hand you take everything you can that's not invasive to the animal we'll take blood obviously and get genetics but you can learn a lot about the overall population by every animal you catch. And that's why we, we do that. But, but yeah, from a hunting standpoint, the use of dogs is, is a tried and true method. It's, I guess, controversial to some people, but there's a lot of bird hunters out there that use dogs as well. And it's pretty, it's a lot different than going out and beating the bush. And I would hyposit, you know, if you're the guy on the ground running behind those dogs, you know, that's, it's not just drive down the road, open the no. truck and it, it's an all day or all weekend endeavor and you may not get it done. Yeah. And, that, and now you asked about that, how many successful times a mountain lion makes a kill. There's a lot of those you turn the dogs loose and after, I don't know how many miles and how many thousands of feet and elevation changes, you end up not getting to that cat and bringing the dogs back. So that happens a lot too. But I mean, for me, whether you're doing it on foot, tracking their where they go or with dogs, you learn so much about the animal by going where the animal goes. And I, that, that was one thing that that's how I learned so much about mountain lions is we had all these cats had radio collars, but it was the old school VHF where you had to go out and find them. And so I, I just, you, you live where the lions live and you, you get to see all the unique things they do. I mean, they'll go up and climb across the log because there's a log there, you know, things like that. So I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. If you had to give advice to folks who actually want to hunt for these animals, because I know there are a lot of people who get excited about it, what would you give them as far as advice on how to target them? Obviously, dogs sounds like a good way to go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you know someone that has trained hounds, that's a really good way. I mean, that's the ninety percent of our harvested lions are with with dogs. And uh, if you don't want to go that route, I mean, we talked about you're going to find lions in rough terrain where there's especially deer, deer and elk and know what those tracks look like. It's always good to go out after a fresh snow and look for tracks. And that's how most, that's how with hounds we do it for the most part. You know, there's there's people that have had success in calling as well, uh, be it the elk cow-calf calls or distress calls. Uh, you can get calls now that mimic or that are recorded mountain lion calls. I've tried those. I haven't had much success myself, but um, but you can use a lot of different calling strategies, especially if there's a high density. Um, if you can find a kill, that's, you know, if, you, if you're if you really willing to do a lot of hiking on tracks, eventually you're going to find a lion kill. And if you can wait on that, there's going to be a mountain lion close. The kills I have found, it seems like, you know, they'll, they'll go ahead and go for those internal organs first, especially exactly. the liver. Yep. And then they kind of cache it, mm-hmm. but they do come back and consume the rest of that animal, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So and you, I'm glad you said that. So mountain lion, the things that we throw away usually are the highest protein, you know? And so that's what they're going to go for first. And when they, when they make a kill, like I said, it's usually a neck bite. They're very clean when they make a kill. We do a lot of verification of what killed this or that, and it, whether it be native prey or livestock, things like that. And so all the different carnivores have very typical ways of killing their prey. Mountain lions are very clean uh, on the, the neck or or the generally at the base of the skull, but sometimes neck, and there's sometimes they'll crush a skull on a smaller animal. But you don't see any of the the business on the legs or the hind end like you do like with a canid or something like that or like a bear's on along the dorsal midline. But then they'll go in, they'll open up the rib cage, they'll they'll take out the rumen first and that you'll you'll find that somewhere close to the kill off by itself 
but then they'll eat those internal organs right away. Ah, it depends on every animal, time of day, whatever. They might but, take that front shoulder a little bit, but they'll cache it. They'll drag it to a place that's not going to attract other avian scavengers especially, and they'll cache it up, and then usually two to three days they'll have it cleaned up. So for the, the livestock ranchers, I mean, if, if they get a kill, kind of like Patrick's misidentification with his canines mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, you really kind of got to do the necropsy to mm-hmm. to determine what it was, right? Well, and call us. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's what our job is, and, and we're always available, and give us a call. And because we do have a compensation program, if it's from a bear wolf or a lion in certain areas, we're going to pay you compensation if it was done and so and it's a very equitable program and yeah just get a hold of us and then we'll come look at it and tell you what we can do but i mean tracks is one way but you could have multiple predator tracks around the yeah. carcass and you really kind of got to come out and have have a specialist come out and determine how it happened absolutely and, and we see that a lot you know in, in northwest wyoming where we've got them all and uh there's always going to be a bear on a dead carcass. You just got to determine if it was scavenging or, or if it killed it. And so that's why we'll do that. So what is the population density for Wyoming and what's the targeted goal to maintain? So we're, we're a little different in that we don't have a number of mountain lions for the state. We assess the populations through trend of um, where, whether the population's stable increasing or decreasing. Now we, that doesn't mean to say we're not doing some targeted areas where we're getting densities and we're always trying to learn more about that. But, but basically our goal is to maintain lines on the landscape at regional density or at different, different densities, depending on regional objectives. So certain areas we might try to maintain a source population, but primarily we try to maintain a stable population. We've had several areas where we've, our goal is to reduce the densities and we have. And so it's kind of that it's because of the way, mountain lions move amongst populations it's this kind of a source stable sink movement but you guys are letting them naturally disperse where they want to there's no artificial relocation absolutely if there's that's one of the big as you mentioned before myths um not so much here but the further east you go uh the notion as these animals show up in new areas it's always black helicopters or and this is seriously it's black helicopters or uh semi trucks or hauling trucks that bring these animals in what would be the benefit of doing that? None. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the cost uh, would be what? A lot. Uh, yeah. But, but I mean, I, I, people just, when you get an animal like that, like we talked about, that is an apex predator, good at what it's doing, gets people nervous, and I understand that. But then when the conspiracy theories start going around, it's interesting. When I was, uh, when I finished up the field component of my work, I was living in eastern South Dakota, like a mile from the Minnesota border. I had this acreage I rented, and the guy who owned it was really cool, good old guy. He knew his stuff, and he came up to the ranch one day and said, so I ran into a guy at the gas station. He said he just saw a truck with eight, this is serious, with eight lines in it that they're, re, they're moving here to kill the deer. I'm like, Kurt, come on, man. That is that is not true, no. And so and that that's kind of the big thing that because of increasing deer populations in the Midwest and the East that, managers are bringing in mountain lions to take care of that and that's absolutely false yeah that makes sense i do want to get a recipe from you because i know (laughs) that you actually have eaten mountain lion and you say it's really good david's had it i've never had it so tell us if you were to have some mountain lion meat how would you prepare it depending on time of year um and what cut of meat we're using uh like in the summer if i had a back uh back strap i would marinate it because it is a tough meat (laughs) But you can marinate it and just put it on a grill and kind of cook it like a pork tenderloin. I've had it that way. It's really good. Otherwise, it's it's a very crock-potable, if that's a word, mm-hmm. crock-potable uh, meat. And I've had it. Now, one thing I haven't done that I want to try, my wife makes a really mean green, green chili. Mm-hmm. I think it would make a really good green chili. I know a friend of mine has done that. And otherwise, slow-cooked like uh, like a pork taco, but a lion taco with lime, cilantro, and all the fixings, guacamole. Uh, so why is there a, a palate difference between the canine and the cat species? As far as how they taste? Yeah. I've never actually eaten the canine. I, well, the, I shouldn't say that. I think I have when I was in Africa. I had it. But that was a domestic dog, <laughs> I guess. Um, I think it's because, of, again, the canids are built for endurance and a marathon and so they're you know you look at the uh, skinned canine any of them and there's nothing to them 
you know, the mountain lions have a lot more meat. So I think that's going to impact the flavor of that meat like it would, you know, like a skinny, skinny deer versus a fat deer. You know, there's going to be a difference in taste. That's probably why. And I mean, I, I've had both carcasses skinned and hung and I, I haven't eaten a canine. So, yeah. and I don't know if it's, it, it's not such a mental thing. It's more just if you were to look at the two side by side, one looks appetizing, the other doesn't. Yeah, it's a darker meat on a canine, and it's just there's not as much to it. Um, that's not, not to say I wouldn't try it. I just, um, yeah, I'll, I'll try just about anything. But Sure, and I know, David, you like it, so how do you like to prepare it? So I've had it uh, just on the barbecue, but we've also uh, made jerky out of it, and it's actually a very good jerky. I bet, I've never had that. So what would you say to the folks out there that are afraid to try it because it is a cat? I mean, you two have had it, so what would you tell them? Well, the, what you do is you trick them. You don't <laughs> you try this piece of jerky, yeah. and when they say, oh, that's good. Oh, well, that's guess what you them. just ate, yeah. Bob no, I mean, again, I, I guess what I would tell people is it's, I mean, it's very similar to uh, to pork, the overall texture, except you don't have the fat marbling that you would with 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 the uh, swine so um but i mean i would concur with with you know just overall appearance texture and it's not again it's not saturated fat like yeah. pork but it's it would be like a really really lean pork yeah it'd be something that you know some would sound good like in a crock pot with some green chili or you know something like that doing a pulled pulled pork yeah. carnita yep, type deal i mean that would probably be really good so yeah. i'll go as far to say if, if you're out there and you have one and you don't want to eat it I'll take it. I'll eat it for you. Yeah, no, and I, I there, that's true. I mean, it's it's worth saving that meat and trying it. And, you know, it's always good if you're at a wild game feed to, to bring in something different. So it's going to be a small game, but it's always going to, everybody's going to try it. And unless it. you're a houndsman, it's going to be a little bit hard to procure that consistently. Well, yeah. true, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, cool, Dan. I really appreciate you coming in. Um, mountain lions are obviously a really great species that we have here in Wyoming, and it's cool to hear a little bit about how they're being managed and um, just learn more about those cats. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course... Please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.